Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about what's happening down in Louisville. And then Joseph Taylor, a church planter here in Chicago, is going to join us. You are listening to The Coming Good. Thursday and welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on just a beautiful fall Thursday afternoon. I don't know about you, Ian, but I know we joked yesterday about how soon the weather will turn in snowstorms, but uh, it's been so beautiful all week that it really has me in kind of a chipper mood. Weather really does that for me, but how are you doing today, my friend? <laughs> Well, I'm looking at the weather app right now. It says uh, sleet for the morning, so uh, <laughs> deep freeze, <laughs> deep deep freeze. So bun- bundle up, Chicagoland. <laughs> yeah, I mean it is uh, all those days that we joked in the summer where you'd go for a run when it was like 110 degrees outside. Uh, you can't ask for it to be better right now. So anyway, we hope you're having a really great day out there. Uh, again, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show. You can find us online, 1160hope.com, and get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review, and we're grateful to those of you uh, who do that. I'm going to give one disclaimer here before we jump in. Uh, as Ian and I have been talking, we've been doing these shows from our houses ever since the coronavirus, and uh, guys doing uh, housework on my house today right as we were starting the show. So uh, enjoy I think that. I hear something right now. Is that what that was? <laughs> I literally could see the guy from my window mm-hmm. right below me. <laughs> ah, as you like to say, we run a tight ship here. So uh, anyway, glad to have you join us. Ian, I do want to jump in. Uh, there's lots of things in the news we could be talking about. Stuff President Trump said about whether or not he's going to accept the uh, whether there's going to be a peaceful transition of power. Thought about starting there and some other places. But really, right now, there's no place to start other than what's going on down in Louisville. And uh, as we were kind of going on the air yesterday, we talked about uh, that the uh, grand jury came out, the DA came out, I believe, and said that they would not be really any charges for any of the three officers uh, directly related uh, to the shooting death of Breonna Taylor. Uh, and then there, as the night went on last night, there were uh Peaceful protest, but there was also some violence. Two police officers in Louisville got shot. Thankfully, it looks like they're going to recover. Just hard to watch. Just really hard to watch. And you and I talked in these terms yesterday uh, about just not really knowing what to say. But I guess I do want to just give you the floor as, as you've been watching and reading and kind of digesting for the last 24 hours. Just this complex story uh, with so many sad elements and and so many hard things to watch. Just wondering uh, kind of where your mind is at as you've been watching this stuff. I mean, it's not where my mind is at will not make for good radio. It's, it's okay. kind of, it's kind of all over the place. I mean, I, I feel like again, you know, the internet seems utterly divided and any mm-hmm. post again, not all that surprisingly is, you know, is met by counter arguments on, on uh, really every side of all of this, you know, it's uh, like, for example, we know that the knock and announce is disputed, that some neighbors are saying yay and some are saying nay. Uh, I know that like a lot of people have been saying, read the report, read the 40-page report over and over again. But there's even a couple of things in there where like like one, it listed uh, Brianna's injuries as, quote, none, even though she'd yeah. been shot several times, uh, indicated that officers had not forced their way into the apartment, even though they used a battering ramp. So that kind of stuff, like... At the very least, 
stokes the fire of suspicion. So when people want to make understandable comments, I guess like, hey, read the report, read the report. Like it's tragic, but here's the law, blah, 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 blah. Like, yeah, there's some problematic stuff in the report too, though, for sure. Like it's not, I don't know. Did you read the David French article that he wrote about it, about the the, the bigger tragedy of the infrastructure surrounding all of this? I don't know if you no, saw that or not. No, yeah, it's, what, did, what did he have to say? It's well, it's about a billion words long. We'll talk about it. <laughs> David French. We'll talk yeah. about it later. But it's uh, he, he takes a very, very, I think, kind of like holistic uh, academic approach to not just the the incident itself, but all, all of the things and the laws and the infrastructures like leading up to it and, and tries to really unpack it at a, at a more systemic level. But, you know, and we mentioned this yesterday, even though it was, it was much more sort of breaking news yesterday, just the, the, the sadness one to see black brothers and sisters, you know, posting and tweeting and sharing their, some of their own grief, but then like just how vitriolic it became, yeah. um, which again, I guess to some degree is understandable. It's just, I'm just speaking only personally. I'm not speaking for this show or our church or any of that. Just like, it's just hard to, to watch and to wrap my, my brain around and, you know, trying my best to like feverishly research and learn and, and try to be aware of my own biases and echo chambers. But like the further that you, you know, fall down the rabbit trail, it's like, gosh, this, this just gets more and more complicated and that's 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 part of the the fatigue to be honest yeah absolutely i i do as i was doing some reading last night i was actually having a great talk with my daughter about it and uh but in the reading going you know you could actually see by the letter of the law how the da got to this spot and this and that and my overwhelming thought was man something's wrong with the law (laughs) like Mm. uh you know just that you could make that argument and uh yeah just it's just so sad. And then to have two police officers get shot while responding to, to the large crowd and, and to see that kind of on the TV and to just see uh, all that was going on last night. Uh, it just was, it was really heartbreaking. It was really heartbreaking. And so uh, kind of what you and I wrestled with yesterday, I mean, uh, you know, I think you and I both wrestle with like, what do we have to add to this conversation? And I guess I would say, as, as you've thought about it, what, what can be, and we've asked this with each of these incidents as we've gone, but what can be the role of the church right now, in your opinion? What has to be the role? What should be the role of pastors? I know I only have like a minute and a half left, but what comes to mind as to the role the church can play in this? I, I'll be honest. I'm getting less interested by the day telling churches and pastors what their role should be, to be totally honest. I don't I don't know that that's my role personally to say, hey, churches everywhere do this or pastors everywhere respond like this. Uh, because each community is different and their context is different and their makeup is different and their leadership is different and their the DNA of their culture is different. Um, I do think one of the things that could potentially just be universal is to lament and grieve, even mm-hmm. even if you don't fully understand as to why there is lament and grief at all. That feels like a place that we can always start as as Christ followers, even if just at a base human level it's saying, I don't even know that I understand why you're grieving, but the very fact that you are is meaningful to me. And so I'm going to enter into it with you. I I think that that uh, is an important thing for us to not lose our, our capacity to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Uh, We'd love to know what you think. I know this is uh, a hard topic to even try to digest and, and what to do with this, but I think that's a good call to lament. And as we talked about yesterday uh, for those of us, 
you know, who don't live near there, a way like to be continue to listen and to continue to pray, uh, I think is an important call. Well, coming up next, we're excited to be jo- joined uh, for two segments by Joseph Taylor. Uh, Joseph has started Canopy Chicago, a church, a new church plant uh, in downtown Chicago. Joseph is going to talk to us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Uh, we are thrilled to be joined, not just for this segment, but the segment following for two segments today by Joseph Taylor. Joseph, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Why don't you, for the sake of our audience, why don't you introduce yourself any way that you see fit? Sure. Uh, I'm a church planter in the city of Chicago with uh, the Converge um, Network, and I've been in the city for, I guess it's coming up on eight years now, where uh, most of that time I was working as a worship pastor on staff with a church plant, Um, and just in the last couple of years have been shifting into taking the lead on starting something new. So in the city with my my wife and my two little ones, uh, eight-year-old Mia and four-year-old Silas, and uh, we are trying to get off the ground, Canopy mm. Church in the city. Awesome. Uh, yeah, we just want to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of Chicago. Oh, man, I love that. And, and you and I have talked uh, at length more existentially, philosophically about church and cities and church plants. And we'll get to that. I, I just know. speak strictly philosophically and, <laughs> and existentially. Yeah. So, if you could send us your citation list at the end of this interview, just so we know, like who you're referring back to for yep, you know for absolutely. our audience, obviously, right? But w- I'd love to know just what is it like thinking about church planning in the midst of COVID right now? Yeah. Uh, the way the way that I have to answer that is we we learned that there is something of an established rule book when it comes to church planting. There, there's always flexibility and adaptation that's required no matter your context. But Mm. I think we discovered a long time ago that, that much of the rule book had to, had to kind of be thrown out just because um, dynamics in our context are, are so unique and they're so fluid. And so we've had something of an open-handed approach to philosophy or I suppose, I suppose the philosophy hasn't changed all that much, but the methodology um, mm. probably has to the extent that we've, we've just, we've needed to sort of, um, uh, be committed to an agile methodology. And so, you know, COVID obviously changes everything for everyone everywhere. Um, us probably not least of all, but mm. I would say that we were already sort of primed with a posture of adaptation. And so, COVID has um, has forced us to double down on that approach, and it's it's of course maddening at times because there is so much about uh, when you sign up and when you say like church planting, I want to do that. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go pursue that. Um, even if you recognize that there's gonna have to be um, you know flexibility and all that, you you um, at least I I suppose I shouldn't generalize it. I, I can say for myself, I believed that the heart of that effort of what I imagined myself signing up for was finding or forming a plan and then going out, rallying uh, a group of people to go execute that plan. Mm -hmm. And that's just really thus far anyways, that has, uh, it's been impossible for that to be the defining Mm -hmm. MO of our approach. 
So it's more, it, it we're just sort of forced to be, um, to keep things more simple um, and to focus most primarily on being disciples of Jesus um, and not presuming to be able to formulate a plan for yeah. this is what the next six months and the next 12 months of this course are going right. to look like. Right. Uh, it's more like we, we devote ourselves today to practicing the way of Jesus the way we understand it. And we keep inviting a group of people to, um, to practice that and to explore that alongside us. Um, but it, it certainly leaves... Uh, it certainly leaves a lot of uncertainty on the yeah. looming on the horizon. Yeah, no kidding. I, I'm curious why Chicago. What is it that you love about Chicago? Why do you feel drawn and called into the city of Chicago? That's a good question. Uh, my wife and I grew up in the far, far northwest suburbs, like closer to Wisconsin than the city. <laughs> you know, we'd venture in once a year for a White Sox game and once a year for, you know, Christmas window shopping, whatever. But we were on the Metro line. And so I guess we got, we were considered Chicagoland. So, you know, already always had kind of a connection to the city, but it was, it was a very far off, distant, somewhat inaccessible kind of deal. Uh, we, we were a part of a couple of church planting efforts down in the South in the Atlanta area. And then specifically in the city of Atlanta, we discovered during our time there that, uh, we just we love city dynamics. We love city life. We love city ministry. Um, it's very different in a city like Atlanta because of its size and, and just some of the unique cultural racial dynamics there uh, than the city of Chicago. But then when we uh, moved moved back up to the city proper um, close to eight years ago, we you know discovered that we that much of the the things that we had many of the things that we had loved and enjoyed about city life and city ministry in Atlanta did translate to Chicago. And um, as we were a part of that church planting effort, we just, we just saw, um, I guess I could speak about it a a number of different ways, but the, 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 I think the way that I have uh, taken most to, to uh, explain and to understand what we experienced as a part of that church plant was just a a sense of burden um, that, you know, as we saw church after church after church close and the, and the stats on church closures hmm. in city of Chicago and, and in cities more broadly are, have been alarming for a long time and they're only becoming more so. Right. And, but they're not just stats. They're like stories that yeah. of people, pastors, um, you know, that we, that we've known, that we've loved, that we've partnered with, that we've served alongside and, you know, just for myriad reasons, although a few that have risen to the top just aren't able to sustain ministry or that, you know, the kind of um, just they just close for, for whatever reason. And, and so it just leaves, you know, 2.7 million people with fewer and fewer um, opportunities to access the way of Jesus and the, the beauty of um, his family in the city. So. Um, yeah, a number of ways I could talk about it, but, but just just a sense of burden, like, and, you know, not just church closures, but people coming, doing their city thing and then moving along and just seeing such a need for people who are willing and and able, uh, to put down roots and kind of play the long game, uh, Mm -hmm. because few of the, the striking issues that you are faced with in uh, life and ministry in the city can be solved in you know a short-term program um it's like if you're not playing the long game you're not Mm. likely to to see a whole lot of kingdom impact 
I'm curious your perspective on cities in general, because Brian and I are both out in the suburbs. I think probably for the last 15 years, I've pastored in the suburbs. I've always had an affinity for cities and I've not always known why. But like, what what do you think is the future of cities in general, maybe particularly in this sort of cultural moment that we're in? Yeah, it's um, it's probably above my pay grade to comment on the future of cities, but I'm going to go ahead and try. Um <laughs> I think I think city dynamics have have uh, have very have for a long time been very fluid. There's there's almost always been a churn of you know business people who come into a city because they're they were taking the next um, you know kind of business corporate opportunity or whatever, and then they're going to do their put in their time at that at that venue and then move on to uh, to the next. There's the churn of like young you know post college grads who who want to do their city thing for a couple of years. Um, those and a few, you know, there's, there's always been something of a, of a churn. Um, but I, I see, I see this because at least anecdotally in my own life, this is, this has been playing out over the last, uh, six months or more, um, where there's, there's, there definitely seems to be an emptying out like folks who, you know, they've been putting up with the hassles of city life for a long time, but they, you know, they, they were able to avail themselves of the, amenities and the and the beautiful things and a lot of those things are just not there now they're not open they're not accessible mm-hmm. um you know i th- i think that the stats are bearing out that this is this has proven to be one of the most violent um one of the most violent years um in i know it's i know that's true in chicago i i believe i've heard the same about new york and la um and so that you know there's just there's uh that those dynamics have a sort of sort of a repulsive force on those who have the options to um to move out of it which is you know many city dwellers don't really have viable options to uh to move out of that but i just i sense that there is there's probably going to be an extended season of like more people leaving cities than moving in and you know back in the day when we were a part of a church planting team down in Atlanta, like we, we moved where we moved because it was the fastest growing County in the country. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like that for quite a while has been like a a key piece of strategy about where and when you plant is you go where there's lots of new people. uh, Because when you are able to connect with folks in transition, like you have a much higher chance of, uh, you know, creating a connection that sticks and so it's it's uh it's a very very different kind of approach when you're presuming to put down roots in a place where that's just not that does not seem presently to be true and it does not seem likely to be true uh for a while. There's there's you know likely to still be some some new folks but um I sense like this kind of emptying out yeah. and I think it's I think that's just going to change social dynamics. I think it's going to change real estate prices i think it's going to change the availability of like physical spaces for churches and nonprofits some to the good i think mm-hmm. um but it's um you know all all the civil unrest that uh, that we're seeing play out in real time all around the country like cities are it seems like for the most part kind of ground zero for a lot of that and so i think you know as we move into november and early next year um I think we're going to see a lot of that stuff like prove even more dominant 
uh, in terms of you know what it looks like to live and uh, and and to do ministry in this city. So, if you guys have uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't know if if you if you know of people who who have urban ministry figured out, please tell me who they are <laughs> because. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, because I need those voices, even though <laughs> they probably don't exist. No doubt, no doubt. That other voice here is Joseph Taylor. It's really fun to talk to him about church planting in Chicago. You can find his website joseph-taylor.com, and uh, he's nice enough to stay with us for another segment here on the Common Good AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Uh, We are going to be joined here for a second segment by Joseph Taylor. Joseph is planting a church in uh, in Chicago called Canopy Chicago. uh, Canopy Church. The website is canopychicago.org. Canopychicago.org. We would encourage you to go check that out. Uh, Joseph, so much good stuff you shared in that. Uh, first segment. I want to ask you this question. You know, uh, in your bio and stuff, you I love what you say. You, you talk about uh, longing to see revival and longing to see God do a powerful work. I, this might be an impossible question, but what's revival look like for you? Like, what would be going on where you're like, man, there's revival? That's a really interesting right question. Now. That's um, it, it's one that I've considered a lot in recent days. Um. I, I, I think I, I fancy myself something of a, a student of re- past revival movements. I mean, I, I uh, worked and ministered in a church for a number of years that, that emerged from the, the Second Great Awakening revival movement in the, in the U.S. So I think, you know, I was kind of steeped in some of the history of revivals uh, for a time, but you know, I've been thinking about about that recently, in part because I've heard uh, just in the last like week, I've been hearing people talk about uh, a revival already happening, and I have to be perfectly honest that the um, the evidences that I see uh, attached to those claims they seem pretty thin. Um, it's it looks a little bit more to me. Like, um, well, I'm not, I'm not sure what it looks like, but, but to, to answer your actual question, uh, I think revivals are almost inexplicable movements of the spirit where he does a lot of the things that he normally does in terms of changing lives and changing, um, social dynamics and changing, uh, you know, broader and broader, um, swaths of people and it's like he rapidly accelerates that work and it plays out you know what n- normally would have happened um, in a in a given region or society whatever over the course of a hundred years happens I- instead over the course of six months yeah. hmm. so it's like this this um, radical like compression of the work of the spirit to uh, to just sort of terraform not just individual lives, but mm. uh, society and, and culture. I kind of want to ask you a personal question. I was kind of piggybacking off of what you were saying there, because you're, I think you're incredibly articulate and you're well-read and you've spent most of your professional vocational ministry career as a worship pastor. And, you know, sort of recently you've, you've made this sort of shift to, to church planner. I'd love to know, like, what was that, journey like are there things 
from your experience as a worship pastor that you're finding like, oh, that's actually been really helpful in sort of this space that I'm in right now. Or maybe conversely, the other things you're like, wow, there's so much about this role that's vastly different than what my experience has been that I've had to sort of learn as fast as I possibly can. What what is that? What has that journey been like for you? Yeah, it's both of the things that you that you said. There, there's something about you know your standard worship pastor role that you're just. At least this was true for me. I, I suppose I shouldn't generalize it. You're just kind of shielded or separated from a lot of the you know other life of the body stuff. Um, and as a church planter, you don't really have the luxury as a pastor. In general, outside of the worship pastor role, you just you don't necessarily have the luxury of you know letting the children's ministry stuff and the admin stuff and the and the actual you know uh, building and growing of the church type of stuff. You don't mm-hmm. you don't have the luxury of letting those things be owned by other people. And so right. yeah, I've had to I've, I feel like I've had to be sort of in a, an extended crash course, making up for um, you know the. The, the those areas where I didn't necessarily have those experiences, but at the same time, and I, I suppose the other half of the coin is is maybe more than anything like other church planters whom I've I've heard speak about my experiences and my skill set with uh, I don't know what I could call it envy i guess like oh you can preach and you can worship lead Uh, my my lived experience of having to try to do both of those things is not necessarily super rosy but i've i've heard that enough from other church planters to believe that that might actually be an asset Hmm. uh you know being able to lead in different areas and to and in the very least like cast vision cast meaningful substantive vision for um, for what it looks like to build a worship culture, um, including getting right. into the nitty gritty of, of team building and leadership development and, um, and working with, you know, crazy, erratic, unpredictable artist types. <laughs> so I've been led to believe that that's an asset, but yeah. I, I don't, I don't know when it is that I'm actually going to feel like it, that is an asset and not just, you know, having to do double duty. Uh-huh. You're, you're still skeptical is what you're saying. I get it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Joseph, for the last two or three minutes, I just want to ask, where's your hope? Where's your hope in the church as you start a church here? My hope is that as unprecedented as the days that we are seeing seem to be, um, I take great solace in reading about the significant challenges that the people of God have endured and in many cases flourished within throughout history. And so, you know, without stealing thunder from the fact that like we are at least as a generation have, have never really seen, um, you know, things like we're, like we're living to see in terms of unrest and, uh, and COVID and, and the, the long list of other, of other significant, um, movemental dynamics that we could describe. I just take great solace in, in looking back through the history of the people of God and seeing that very, very often the Lord has done his best work in times where, um, his, his people either feel or, or actually are, um, assailed and Mm. challenged Mm. and frustrated in so many of their, um, plans and, you know, sort of more, um, institutional inclinations that the more that those things 
have been frustrated. I just I recognize this as a as a pattern through history. Like it seems like it breaks things open to allow something like revival, you know, that, mm-hmm. that rapid escalated um, compressed movement of the spirit. It, it like allows more room for that to happen. And I just, I'm super hopeful that um, in the next few months and years and decades, like we're going to mm-hmm. see these challenges that we are presently facing proving to be catalyzing forces mm-hmm. for the outbreaking renewal movement of the spirit in our time. Uh, Joseph, that's such a good word. That's so hopeful. And uh, again, this is Joseph Taylor. Uh, You can find out about the church at canopychicago.org. That's canopychicago.org. Also go to his website, joseph-taylor.com. That's joseph-taylor.com. Joseph, this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us. Uh, Scott Sauls, friend of the show, been on the show a few times, somebody that we talk about often at his blog, uh, scottsauls.com, wrote this blog uh, just the other day, Why We Need Not Fear the Future. Why We Need Not Fear the Future. Let me just read a little bit of it, uh, and then we'll respond. Uh, Scott says, reflecting on the future of the human race, Anne Lamont said candidly, a hundred years from now, all new people. Similarly, George Bernard Shaw quipped, life's ultimate statistic is the same for all people. One out of one dies. I've always liked reading Lamont and Shaw because both of them cut to the chase and raw and unfiltered tell the truth about life. And the truth about life is, at least for now, that life is temporary, fleeting and fading like a vapor. Because the current mortality rate is one out of one, none of us gets to ride off into the sunset. At least it doesn't seem that way. But for those whose personal stories are anchored in the story of Jesus, the threat of death, we are told, is not a cause for despair. To be sure, it is a cause for momentary grief and sorrow and weeping, but attentive hearts also know that death is a prequel to paradise. The bridegroom and the garden city of God await, ready to catch us On the other side, he then quotes Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. He says, in the end, death will lose its sting. Because Jesus is risen, we too will rise with renewed bodies and perfected hearts, minds, and motives. If we can imagine it, and even if we can't, every single day will be better than the day before. The aging process will no longer be marked by getting older and weaker, but younger and stronger for infinite days. This future vision, anchored and secured and irrevocably etched into the pages of Scripture, presents us with a hope that can carry us, quote, through many dangers, toils, and snares. Its promise is that for every believer, the worst-case future scenario is resurrection and everlasting life in Jesus. Yes, in the end, that's as bad as it can possibly get for us in Jesus. Uninterrupted, unhindered, perpetual bliss in the garden city of God, with a tree in its center that is there for the healing of the nations. The empty tomb affirms that all these things are true and forever will be trustworthy and true. Uh, And then he's going to go on to talk about, but what about now? But uh, Ian, we'll stop there for a second. His painting that picture of the future uh, of the reality for the believer. uh, What does that do for you? Does that provide you hope? Is that, or does that seem too unattainable? What, what does the, uh, the everlasting um, being in the presence of Jesus do for you on your day to day? Yeah, I mean, I think if the blog stopped there, it would be frustrating. Um, It would be frustrating. Okay. You don't think so? Uh, I could see that for sure because it's just kind of out there for sure. 
So you want to talk about the what about now, though? Uh, I it it's not not entirely true. I think we need I think we need both. I think sometimes mm-hmm. we can be too obsessively utilitarian where we're only focused on the what about now. But I also know, and then historically, particularly in sort of like the eighties and nineties Western Christianity was a lot about um kind of I'll fly away theology. You know, mm-hmm. like oh man, don't need to worry about the environment or my neighbor or care, care for the least of these. Cause eventually I'm getting sucked out of here and I have my, this kind of future hope and vision, which I get, I get why that's attractive. I totally understand the like hunker down here. It just seems like in some context that that whole, like I'm not a citizen of earth theology was used as a sort of religious escapism mm-hmm. to, free myself from any kind of responsibility here and now. But I also know that the the flip side can also be true. We're like, you're, you're just so not only constantly focused and preoccupied with the here and now, but there, there doesn't seem to be any like eternal sense or perspective about where this is all going. So I think yeah. I mentioned that because I think it's important to have, to have both. And it, and it looks fans. like that's what he's doing. Yeah, that's good. He says, but, but what about now? What about the in-between time, these broken, never predictable, wild, sorrow-filled, out-of-our-control, afflicted, fallen days in which we live? He goes on to say, it's a critical question for me, if for no other reason that scores of people look to me for answers to that critical question, because I'm a pastor. As a pastor, part of my job is to help others through the numberedness and hardness of their days. Uh, But like them, I'm also a jar of clay, he says. He says, I've been anxious and depressed. I have doubted my calling and been in vocational through a vocational crisis. I've questioned the meaning of life and begged God to end it all. I've contemplated the inevitability of my own death. I have at times have been vulnerable, having been involuntarily lifted up by the creator who, as C.S. Lewis faithfully reminds us, is always good but never safe and have been struck by him. And yet, even in the striking, we can also find an occasion to rest in the mercies of God. Even and if our hearts can receive it, especially from this place of affliction, it is from this place of being struck that God intends for us to become most receptive and most consciously needful of a story that offers hope. One that, as N.T. Wright would say, helps us to imagine God's future into our present sorrows and losses and in the imagining, in finding our place in the story that is trustworthy and true, find truth, beauty, meaning, and hope. Isn't this true of us all, he says, that we need a story of life that outlasts the story of death? A story that says, hang in there and hang on, for this shall pass. A story that helps us find joy in the sorrow, beauty in the ashes, light in the darkness, intimacy in the fear, love in the losses, water in the wilderness, music in the angst, and yes, even life in the dying. And he goes on to quote C.S. Lewis, uh, and he ends by saying, Lord, give us eyes to see and hearts to receive, for your words, all of them, are trustworthy and true. Uh, I always love that Scott Sauls is so open about his own struggles. And just to say, not just as a pastor, but as a person, how this reality of our future in the midst of the hard days now, he, he acknowledges how hard they I, they are and how dark they can be while giving hope. I always, I always appreciate that about Sauls. Yeah, I think like a good analogy would be um, those new gutters that you're getting right now that we all hear. You don't is hear like, them, do you? Do you hear them like all? <laughs> so loud, Brian. <laughs> unbelievably loud <laughs> so you're like in you're in the already not yet right now of gutters on your house and so although there's like 
some this noise and disruption, pass. right? The future <laughs> hope that you're looking toward will uh, will sustain you. <laughs> well, we'll go ahead and find that blog post from Scott Sauls. You can find it at scottsauls.com, but it's also up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, gutter, new gutters and all. The first hour is in the books here. Coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about uh, something that I know I've been seeing a lot of Christians think is a wonderful thing. And other people are saying is not a good thing at all. Let's talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for you. Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss the many worship concerts going on from Sean Foyt. And then later in the hour, we're going to hear old audio from Billy Graham. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're excited to have you joining us on this Thursday afternoon. As a reminder, if you missed any of the first hour, including the interview that we were able to do with a local church uh, church planter in Chicago by the name of Joseph Taylor, you can find that on our podcast at the Common Good Radio Show is the Facebook page. You can find us find us online at 1160hope.com. But if you do listen to the podcast, go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, we are really excited for those of you who do that. And it really does help us if you go ahead and subscribe and you rate and you review. Uh, Ian, curious if you've seen anything, because I want to read two very different articles, but have you at all seen uh, this, uh, I think he's Hillsong, one of the worship leaders by the name of Sean Foyt. I think we decided his name is F-E-U-C-H-T. We're going to go with uh, Sean Foyt, uh, his Let Us Worship tour. Have you been? Uh, have you seen any of this going around the news lately? I have, Brian. Thank you for asking. You're welcome. For those of you who don't know what this is, Sean Foyt, as we said, he's a worship leader at Hillsong. And what he's been doing uh, is specifically going to places where there've been lots of protests and lots of unrest, but then other places as well. Last week, I think it's Bethel too, by the way, I think it's, Oh, did I get it wrong? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Tomato, tomato. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) We want to give it the right way. Oh boy. (laughs) I'm joking. Brian Fromm over at uh, Willow Creek community church. (laughs) I'm joking. Uh, All right. He's at Bethel. And uh, he's been going kind of city to city, including Chicago, uh, across the United States and doing worship concerts and uh, called the Let Us Worship Tour. And there's a couple of things that stand out about it. One, uh, it's been drawing huge crowds, very few masks to be seen. It's kind of like we are going to stand up and worship in the midst of COVID. They're outside and this and that. Uh, A lot of the cities that he's going to have not been happy that they've been coming. Uh, but he's also been going to a lot of the places where there has been uh, protests and unrest. Uh, and so he's been kind of getting a big following going around. And, and I want to read two perspectives of this here and then just get your feel for this. Uh, the first one is out of Christian headlines. It says, over the weekend, worship leader and activist Sean Foyt continued his Let Us Worship tour across two Florida cities as thousands of Christians poured out their hearts and souls before the Lord. According to CBN News, the tour first met on Saturday evening in Orlando, uh, and Foyt noted how well pe- how people were giving their lives to the Lord, including drug addicts and prostitutes. And so his story goes on uh, that despite the city not being excited about them being there, them being stopped from being certain places, he's saying there's a real movement of the Holy Spirit going on right now 
that uh, that people are being saved, that that all sorts of stuff is going on. And but then there's another article out of Religion News, and it says this. Well, I'm sorry, is there, sh- is there an alligator behind you, Brian? Are you okay? <laughs> is everyone okay on that side? I just want to make sure everyone's safe. <laughs> I'm ignoring all noises right now, man. <laughs> Sound like an alligator that just had a really full meal and he was just happy to be there. But if way. you want to have loud noises, have your gutters replaced apparently while you do a radio show. And that's mm-hmm. what's going on in my oh, life. I just want to make sure you're OK. If people would know, I've just fled to the basement to get away from the noise and it's followed me pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but thank you for pointing that out, making me feel self-conscious. Uh, <laughs> religion news. Uh, trying to make uh, you feel self-conscious. Just want to make sure that everyone – Listening and didn't think they were losing their minds. Like, wait, did they not hear this? Am I losing my mind? Just want to just for the it's for the common good of our audience. I will say that everybody is healthy here. Everybody is safe. And I feel self-conscious about it. (laughs) Fair enough. All right. So D.L. Mayfield wrote how a Sean Foyt worship service convinced me I'm no longer an evangelical. So it's a long article, but let me just get into a little bit. And then I want you to just tell me your reaction to these. Uh, she said, up until a few weeks ago, I considered myself an evangelical Christian. And she goes into the background of this uh, about how this is her tribe, even though she uh, grew up evangelical. But but she's seen a lot that she has struggled with, but that she was uh, OK. And then she said, because of my experiences at the protest, when I heard that a worship leader from Southern California was coming to Portland to hold a riots to revival concert downstairs, downtown, I was immediately suspicious. The event organized by a church in Vancouver, Washington, was being heavily promoted by charismatic and evangelical Christians as a chance to push back against the state laws forbidding from Christians from gathering in the church to sing during COVID-19. I decided to attend with my husband to support my friend who was organizing a counter protest. And she said, just standing on the edge of the worshiping crowd was enough to draw the ire and attention of many folks. For almost two hours, I was constantly confronted, yelled at, live stream, prayed over and told I was not a real Christian, but I was not prepared. She talks about uh, of just feeling out of place. Uh, he, she says, Sean Foyt was marrying politics with worship leading. Uh, and he's been raising money to travel to spots in the United States where deaths at the hands of the police and others have taken place and protests have been happening. She said, I knew almost every word to the songs the group was singing, but I could not bring myself to sing along. She said, I lost my religion that day in that crowd of worshipers. I lost the word evangelical as I realized I was surrounded by people who truly believed they were proclaiming uh, the good news. Yet on the edges of their concert, young people of color were begging for them to listen to their grief instead of shouting over it. So it goes a lot longer. But I'm curious your thoughts about this worship movement in the not only in, in the face of the protest, but his more movement is like, hey, COVID can't shut us down. We're going to keep gathering and we're going to have this movement. And you kind of read these disparate kind of reviews, if you will, of people who've been there. And and you said you're aware of it. I'm wondering, does this are you like, yes, man, go for it. Let's let's have these. Or does it make you uncomfortable? Kind of the purpose behind them? Uh, I don't think. Either I don't think I would put myself okay. in, in either of those camps necessarily. I'm I'm uh, I'm a little torn because there is a certain part that feels um, pretty interestingly like in the category of sort of Jesus inspired civil disobedience, right? So like mm-hmm. certainly heard from people in Chicago, like okay, so we can uh, allow these protests to happen, but as long as they but the moment they start singing Christian songs, then we have to like shut it down. And they're like, we're right. going to sing anyway. There's a certain part of like punk rock in me that thinks 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Good for you guys. Now, like the, you know, the let's keep the COVID stuff aside for, for now, because there's other complications with gathering in general, I suppose. Um, the part that I think I find trickiest is that these seem to be predominantly and strategically at places where some kind of violence has taken place and the general posture is like grief and lament. Mm -hmm. And with that being the backdrop, again, not of every single one of these places, but that, that feels like that's part of the strategy. That is a microcosm of some of my bigger issues with evangelicals wrestling with lament, grief, sorrow, pain, and again, these, you know, both these articles and they're both up at our Facebook page are written from a very specific posture right. and position. Um, but like the line in one of them, you know, where they're like singing these happy Jesus songs while people of color are on the fringes, asking them, begging them to stop while they grief, why they, why, you know, asking them to enter into their pain. Uh, that's a, that's a perspective, you know, that's, I'm not saying that's yep. what everybody always at each of these gatherings is saying, but there, there is a part of me that does feel a little bit like, Oh, is ah, is that the right way to go about this, or is this the yeah. right avenue or the right venue for this type of move? You know, so so I really am torn because part of me thinks like, man, yeah, people. If you know this other article out of Christian Headlines is talking about people renouncing their life of prostitution, they like want to give their life that's to right. Jesus. I think yeah, that's fantastic. Let's see more of that. But if it's if it's on the backs of communities that are grieving that maybe are legitimately saying that please don't do this. Please don't sing happy celebration songs just yet. Like we need to grieve. We need to lament. I would, I would see that as, as problematic. I, I think you, you summed up how I'm feeling about it too, as I read it going, something feels weird about it, but yet I want to, I want to celebrate new life and I want to celebrate these things they say are happening. And at the same time, uh, it seems uh, a little bit off. And so it's really interesting. He's also a bit of a political activist, which I think adds to this a little bit. Right. Uh, uh, that I think makes it uh, a little more problematic for some people and maybe a little more encouraging for others. So if you're unaware of these, go to our Facebook page, read these articles and let us know what you think. Because as you can see, both he and I both feel a little torn about this and, and right. are just going, I would love to know what other people think. So uh, I got some good news. I think, knock on wood, the guys who were cleaning up are gone. So maybe less noise from my house. But either way, we're glad oh, that you're joining us. Thanks, Sean Few. Uh, <laughs> next, uh, coming up next, we're going to talk about an article from a blog by Scott McKnight at Christianity Today entitled Jesus Breaks Through Some Limits. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this beautiful Thursday afternoon. Uh, All righty, at Christianity Today, Scott McKnight blogs there. Uh, and this one from Kelly uh, Edmiston, Edmiston is entitled this, Jesus Breaks Through Some Limits. Jesus Breaks Through Some Limits. Why don't you tell us what's going on on this one? Why don't I, Brian? Yeah, no, why don't you? Why don't oh. you? Well, let's see. Uh, a couple of options. I don't know how to read. Number two, I secretly, I can't even think of anything. Number right, here yep. we go. It begins by saying, last week I began a series on Mark 7, 1 through 23, in which I claimed that as soon as Jesus proclaimed that, quote, the kingdom of God is near, that he went on to break a bunch of rules, especially rules connected to the Jewish purity code. Remembering that for the Jews, being ceremonially clean was everything. You can read Leviticus 11 for all the ways they could become unclean or defiled. In Mark chapter 7, verse 1 through 23, 
the Pharisees did not appreciate Jesus not following <laughs> their rules about who and what is unclean by not washing his hands before he ate. During COVID-19, hand washing is a big deal. In order to help my young children wash for more than 20 seconds, we recite the Lord's Prayer. The problem is my kids recite it so fast that it takes them about five seconds instead of 20 seconds. Think of something like this. Oh, Father, why are in heaven? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. will be done. <laughs> they make it a race. You might say they completely miss the point of both hand washing for purity's sake and the sacred experience of memorizing the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> and this is part of Jesus' problem with the Pharisees and their hand washing rituals. In their strict obedience to the ritual, they missed the heart behind the ritual. Jesus has some words for them. Jesus replied, You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Uh, for you ignore God's law and substitute your own traditions. Jesus calls them hypocrites or pretenders. And the example he gives that validates his accusation is this. They ignore God's law and substitute their own tradition. Jesus goes to explain what he means in Mark chapter 7, verse 9 through 13. He says that you skillfully sidestep the laws that don't serve you while neglecting the laws that require you to care for your parents. Apparently, the Pharisees decided that they were not going to provide financially for their needy parents because they had, quote, divide, uh, devoted those funds to God. The reason for Jesus' harsh judgment of the Pharisees is because they are conveniently setting aside some parts of the scriptures that do not serve them, and in so doing, failing to care for the needy and vulnerable among them. In my youth group, we are studying hermeneutics right now in a fun, youthy sort of way, she writes, <laughs> which I don't know if you ever taught hermeneutics when you were a youth pastor, if that was a thing you did. The, uh, no, that wasn't a thing. I mean, like a very youthy version, let's put it that sure, way. Sure, <laughs> yeah, that's an appropriate description. Uh, one thing that I've told the students is that as we approach the Bible, we all pick and choose. We pick and choose what scriptures we follow literally and what scriptures we deem as appropriate or applicable for that ancient audience in time. This is not something to be afraid of, I tell them. It's just a fact. Do we greet one another with a holy kiss as Paul instructs in Second Corinthians? No. Do women cover their heads while they pray as commanded in First Corinthians 11? No, we pick and choose. This is what the Pharisees are doing here, and this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus calls them hypocrites, not because they pick and choose, but because they do so at the detriment of the ones in need. And I'll, I'll just read this last paragraph here. As a church, have we done this? Are there interpretations of rules that we have insisted on following that have allowed us to sidestep the commands requiring us to care for people in need? One way to discern if we're guilty of this is to ask, who are the most vulnerable among us? Who is in need? Who has the least amount of power here? And then how does our church practice uh, include, how does our church practice include welcome and care for these people? If the rules or the interpretation of the rules become the means by which we don't care for people in need, then it may be time to adjust the rules. Let's allow love and human flourishing to be the lens through which we read and interpret the scriptures. Uh, that to me is a really, really important charge. Yes. And one yes. that maybe as you're hearing, you think, well, yeah, that seems that seems easy enough. But what I've encouraged people to do, too, is like, you know, read through the Gospels in their entirety. And you might actually be surprised by some of the red letter stuff that just doesn't get taught on or doesn't make it to T-shirts. You're like, whoa, hold on. Jesus said what? <laughs> like that is way more intense or asks way more of me than I, you know, maybe previously anticipated. It's a really, I think, important and beautiful exercise to actually make it a habit of reading through the Gospels because you'll realize yeah. – but there's a whole there's a whole lot about Jesus that maybe maybe I wasn't necessarily aware of. 
I was just reading that passage yesterday or today hmm. where, uh, where Jesus says, uh, where he basically, uh, this is going to be my own version, right? Where he basically says, they're like, wait, wait, when did we reject you? We never saw you. And he's like, uh, in how you treated the least of these and how you did this. And you're just like, oh my gosh, that is the most, <laughs> that is so convicting. And like you said, we often scrape over those, but the, uh, th- that rule of love your neighbor as yourself being kind of the, uh, the, um, uh, the umbrella under which how we treat each other, everything falls under. I think she is just pounding home here. Go basically, are are we doing things to sidestep the ultimate call in our lives to love everybody, to love our neighbor, to love the least of these, to love those that Jesus seemed to be oriented towards the most? Uh, and and are we are we kind of picking and choosing? And what we're choosing not to follow, like he said, like the Pharisees did, uh, was. How do I care for the least of these? How do I hold up the hurting? How do I reach out to those? Because, you know, that gets messy. That gets that that takes a lot of effort. That can cause us have to sacrifice. And so I think that's a powerful word uh, on her part. And uh, it's a convicting one, right, man? Like to to start taking those kind of calls seriously uh, to love our neighbor. I think, don't you think that as we take that seriously as a lens through which I'm going to look at stuff, it kind of reorients everything about our life. And I think that's what often scares me about it. Uh, yeah, I don't know that it, I don't know that it scares me, but it, it certainly convicts me. I mean, I think it's, yeah. it's one of the reasons that uh, Rich Mullins was not invited back to Wheaton. If I recall correctly, he made some comment like, I think that's why Christians invented highlighters so we can highlight the parts of the Bible that we like and ignore the parts that we don't. And I think that was <laughs> the last time he spoke in chapel. And it is, it is convicting because uh, I think oftentimes we will, churches will often tout themselves as Bible believing, right? That's a pretty common sort of self acclamation. And what becomes painfully clear is that, yeah, there's plenty that we just don't, especially when you include the epistles and like, so we talk about, Oh, even like I've seen a lot of memes lately, like, Oh, I want a biblical wife. And you're like, well, which or biblical marriage, <laughs> yeah. which version of marriage in the Bible are you yeah. referring to exactly? Yeah. Cause there's yeah. a, there's a couple of depictions there. So at the very least, yeah, I think that word, if you've never heard uh, hermeneutics, is an important thing to uh, at least maybe dip a toe in those waters. Cause I think it's, I think it's a really helpful discipline. All right. Someday we have to uh, commit an entire segment to the fact that uh, I was on campus at Wheaton when Rich Mullins was there for an entire semester. Oh yeah. And, right. Uh, some very quality Rich Mullins stories. <laughs> sure Are they safe yes. for radio? Well, we, we might need to talk them through first. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, speaking of Wheaton, its most famous alum, I came across uh, a Billy Graham sermon, and I wanted to play just a minute or a minute and a half of it because, A, it's just good to hear Billy Graham's voice with all that's going on right now. But I thought he touched on something that's so super important uh, for our Christian lives and something I think, quite frankly, a lot of us struggle with. We're going to do that next, coming up here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us. It's a cascade of errors in my home right now. That was Pippa, right? (laughs) Yes, it was. Is is Pippa doing the gutter work on your house? Is that what's going on? Can, Can I just tell you? That I was about to make the joke that my house got so quiet now that uh, now that the gutter people left and then my dog just went crazy. Goodness, oh, I wish you I wish you had said that. So I wish sorry. Pippa could have waited ten seconds for you to go. I'm Gosh, so my house sorry. is so quiet. <laughs> it's just the dog is nine pounds and so loud. <laughs> it's, it sounds like a nine pound dog. 
It does. Uh, Billy Graham. for many of us, like I said, I, he played a role in my life. Not only did I go to Wheaton College where, uh, you know, he plays, he's our most famous alum. I took most of my classes in college in the Billy Graham Center um, on campus. Uh, but also uh, I went to Billy Graham stuff when I was a kid. Just there's something about hearing Billy Graham's voice. Uh, he was known oftentimes as America's pastor and uh, it just can be uh, comforting. But but I came across this, it's going to be about a minute and a half. I came across uh, a clip from a sermon that he gave that I think he touches on something that most people wouldn't expect him to say, but I think is so important, provides such humility for us. Uh, so I want you to hear it and then we're going to react. Let's listen to Billy Graham. I want to tell you about him tonight. I want to tell you about God. The first book, the first verse in the Bible tells us, in the beginning, God. Now, where did God come from? How could he just suddenly appear? And in the beginning, there was God. I don't know. Neither do you. The Bible says that he's from everlasting to everlasting. How can that be? I don't know. There's a mystery to it all. And yet by faith we believe that God had no beginning and he has no end. I cannot even prove to you the existence of God. No scientist can. How do we know there's a God? You can't put him in a test tube. You can't make a mathematical formula of him as Einstein did in relativity. You accept by faith that he is the creator of the whole universe. All right, Ian, Billy Graham, uh, someone who most people look to for answers, uh, probably a lot. They constantly probably asked him to explain hard things. Uh, But what did you think about him, especially his kind of uh, his admitting, if you will, there's just times to say, I don't know. And neither do you. What, what do you think about that for Billy Graham? Oh man, you're going to, you're going to call me the wet blanket of this segment. Cause I really, I kind of, I kind oh, of already, okay. I already have an idea of where you want to go. So maybe okay. <laughs> no, go, I, go where you're I, going. I, I asked I you the you question first. I, I, I mean, I can, no. if you want, um, no, you go, you go. So he said it at the onset, there is something to hear in his voice. I do appreciate that for sure. Uh-huh. And, by and large, uh, I do appreciate a lot of what he was saying. Where did God come from? I don't know. And neither do you. That's a, that's just very quintessential Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. Um, talks about mystery. Talks about faith. I think the part that for me is becoming increasingly clear that culture has shifted. It certainly shifted from the time that Graham was young and, and, and even since the time that this clip is recorded, um, it feels like the age in which Christianity can successfully kind of pit itself against science is over. I don't, mm, I, gotcha. I don't, I don't see that as a helpful apologetic anymore. I get why he said it because I was probably being introduced to Christianity around the same time in my own life. So 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 that makes sense, but it does feel like if even even subtly when we when we stand at odds with science, like hey, science can't prove it, 
So you just got to go on faith. The, the, the longer that I'm alive, the more I think, no, 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 but so much in science like reveals the beauty and goodness and presence of God. Like I, I don't want to create, I don't want to create a distance between those two things. Mm. It, I'm not saying it doesn't still absolutely require faith. I don't think that will ever not be the case, but I think there's also, and I've, I mean, I've read some, not recently, so I can't really quote anything, but there, there are some really um, intriguing cases for, mathematics pointing to the existence of God, physics mm. pointing to the existence of God. So I, I'm often I just a little bit skittish as of late to like pit the two against each other. Like I, I was listening to a, a podcast and the guy's whole premise behind his new book was telling a better story. And kind of what I took away from that, that interview was uh, where you and I, Brian, maybe our upbringing really was trying to equip us to make a better argument you know, have you ever been, you ever been in a situation like that where you all you you brought all your training to your conversation with your atheist friend, and you set up a bunch, you set up a bunch of straw straw man arguments for them, and then like the big reveal is like, ha ha, but Jesus. And if you've ever had a friend respond and say, it's not, it feels like you tricked me there, like yeah, 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 that feels like a bait and switch kind of thing. You're like, oh, that doesn't that doesn't feel good. So it was sort of like instead of making a better argument. I want to tell a better story. And he kind of goes on to talk mm. about the, the significance of story more and more now than even 10 years ago. So that's not really where I think you are wanting to go with this. So I'll, I'll stop there. But I think, yeah, by and large, if I'm being the least wet blankety as I can be, I like what he said. Um, yeah. But there's uh, probably a couple of things that like, you know, if it were up to me, I would I would tweak. You know, that's what I appreciate about doing a show with you, man, is because I feel like we listened to the same thing and, and kind of went two very different directions with it. I think what you just said there is really good. I think it is is totally valid. When I heard him, my first thought was, I to have Billy Graham say that is so comforting to me because I'm tired of the preachers and the pastors uh, that I know that I might be, you know, you know, or hear who, who feel like they have the answer for everything. And they can yeah, they can answer every question and answer every this and and what I heard Billy Graham saying there was hey it's okay to be like you know what in fact it, it grows to have the humility to say I can't explain everything kind of grows the mystery and the the enormity of God in our lives uh, but I also agree with you that I do believe that to go ah science can't explain anything it's just faith and this is also not helpful. Right. Uh, I think both of those are true. And I think we went two different directions with it. I kind of like that. I kind of like that. Uh, but I think we both decided. Also, it's just good to hear Billy Graham, too. I, I would wonder what he would say in today's uh, today's environment. So, well, coming up next, I want to end the show from Pathios. Uh, this article, God Promises Blessings, Not Prosperity. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 11. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're really glad that you joined us on this beautiful Thursday afternoon. I was going to point out, Ian, and I'm going to jinx myself, there's no noise in my house right now. I actually think, <laughs> I think we have tranquility in our home. I'm sure a kid is going to start screaming or something. But <laughs> Brian, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I don't believe in jinxes. <laughs> well, I do, and it's probably about to play out here. <laughs> you do actually oh. believe in jinxes? That's like a are you a sports superstitious kind of guy? I I'm not. Although it's so weird, like when you watch your favorite team, you'll be like, "I am going to sit in that chair again." Like it makes a difference, or I have to wear this uh, this uh, uniform or this uh, jersey. But 
I don't actually believe that they mean anything. Have you ever met someone who actually believes those things, though? Oh, yeah, for sure. It's wild. It is wild. Um, anyway, want to end the show this way at Pathios, which is a great blog if you've ever been there. It's like a collection of blogs uh, that, that they write from an evangelical view, a Catholic view. They'll have atheists on there, all sorts of different things. Uh, and this one is entitled, I just wanted uh, us to read it by Michael Bird, uh, entitled God Promises Blessings, Not Prosperity. I thought this would be an interesting one to end with, to leave us with something th- to think about. So why don't you read for us, God Promises Blessings, Not Prosperity. You want to read the whole thing? Sure. I don't think it's very long. All right. Here we go. From Michael F. Bird. He says, a friend of mine was once doing a short internship at an African-American church in the United States. During the Sunday morning service, when the offering was taken up, the congregation would sing a song about sowing in generosity and reaping a blessing. My friend would always shake his head at this, feeling somewhere between bemused and alarmed at this flagrant display of prosperity (laughs) theology. He felt no small dose of shame when it finally dawned on him one day that the congregation was, in fact, singing the words of St. Paul in 2 Corinthians. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. That's 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8. through 8. Just to be clear, God is not a slot machine. We do not put money into him and hope that the odds are in our favor and he pays off big sometime soon. Neither is God a Ponzi scheme where we offer him our financial gifts with a view to sharing in his riches until it all goes bust. Nor is God an investment opportunity where we get the inside track of an exciting new project with the guarantee of exponential profits after a short period. God is nothing like this. What is certain because it is scriptural, is that God is generous and he generously blesses his people. It is from that blessing that we in turn feel the tug of the Holy Spirit at our hearts to bless others out of our abundance and to bless God back out of thanksgiving. Divine generosity creates a contagious habit of giving that uh, exponentially increases as it is experienced and shared with others. This isn't about algorithms or karma. It is the circle of divine generosity that begins with God and ends with God because God is the giver of all good things, and we are a part of that circle in our own giving and receiving of gifts. It is dangerous because it is so obviously alluring to think that if we give to the church or to charity that God somehow owes us. That's not true. It never has been, never will be. Who can lend to the Lord that the Lord should owe him or her anything? God has no creditors, only debtors. Oh, that's a good line. God, <laughs> God has no creditors, only debtors. Those who have been redeemed from debtor's prison. What is true, however, is that if we give to this circle of divine generosity, we will contribute to an abundance of blessing for those in need, a.k.a. sowing, and we ourselves will benefit from it in due course, a.k.a. reaping. The little boy who gave Jesus five barley loaves and two small fish saw his gift miraculously multiplied and used to feed others and himself probably ate more than he brought along that day. When we engage in feats of generosity, we are never to think about what we can get out of it. Rather, we should be driven by thanksgiving and a desire to bless others as we ourselves have been blessed. We are to believe that from our meager or mighty resources that God is able to do much 
And as much as we give, we can confidently expect the circle of divine generosity to spin faster and wider to find ourselves experiencing the exponential blessing of its increasing revolutions. I, I actually think that's really well written and very close to my heart and how I've often tried to speak of it. Yeah. I'd be curious to know not just what you think of that, but like why, why particularly did you want to end the show with this article? Yeah, you know, when we don't do the Good News Network or stuff like that, I, I and you do too, I think, try to end the show to give us something theological to think about, something to go. And and I do think the dangers of, I don't, I think all of us would agree with it theoretically in our minds, but yet we still do treat God like a slot machine or a Ponzi scheme or a, well, now he owes me. Uh, and, and I thought that this article was really helpful in kind of dispelling that because it's such a dangerous theology. Oh, if I give $5 to church, God's got to have to give me 20 back and that kind of stuff. And it, it really is dangerous. And so I think so many of us believe in it subtly or just overtly that I wanted to leave us with this to leave some people thinking, maybe you're in your car right now going, Oh yeah, I do kind of believe that theology because it's a dangerous theology that, that takes us into some bad places. And I know you've taught this before. I'm curious as we start to get moved towards close here, uh, just kind of how do you teach this? I know you teach this way a lot. How do you teach this? How is it kind of similar to what uh, they're talking about here? Yeah, man, there's a, a couple of different ways. I think the most common is, you know, to see everything that we have as a gift that we're to steward well in the world. But even more interestingly, it feels like, you know, a couple of things. You just spends almost a quarter of his earthly ministry talking about what we do with our stuff. So clearly our stuff, our wealth, our resources uh, has significant value in the eyes of Jesus, not right. eternal value, but it like points. And he says, Hey, where your treasure is, that's where your heart really is. So if you want to know where your heart is, that's a pretty good indicator. But he also elsewhere talks about like, like in certain parables, like joining in the master's happiness. And one of the ways I described this years ago was like, if you're, if you're at a ball game back when we could all actually go to a ball game and your team does something wonderful and everyone around you stands up and cheers, like you could, just stay in your seat, arms crossed, refusing to cheer. If you want, that's that's fine. But the rest of the space is going to erupt in cheers. And yes. part of what I've tried to talk about generosity is like, man, God is doing something in the world and you have the freedom to stay in your seat, arms crossed, but he's inviting us to mm. participate in it. And the invitation of participating in something, you know, Andy Stanley will often say, man, God wants something for you, not from you. Like it's, it's in choosing to loosen our grip around the stuff that we, you know, sometimes believe like is mine and only mine. That life of generosity is actually, you know, Paul right. says to Timothy, that's the life that's truly life. And mm. you don't really know that for sure until you actually step out in it. And that's why I think, yeah, this is an important call, man. I, I agree so much. And, and Jesus talks about it so often. And Paul talks about it so often that it unlocks joy in our lives, which is just the backwardness. Uh, of his kingdom. But I wanted to leave that with us, uh, uh, challenging some of us, hopefully an encouragement to others. Well, it's been quite the interesting day, man. We got to talk about my gutters and all sorts of things, but uh, we're grateful. Pippa, all sorts of people have made appearances from my house today, but we are glad that you joined us and join us again tomorrow as we close out the week. Uh, We'll be together from four until six. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life.